Hey, Melody. Hi, Peter. Drew's not here today. <laughs> he has a job. Must work. Whatever. Pay for things. Today we have a very good friend of mine as a guest. Kevin, would you please introduce yourself? Um, sure. Uh, I'm I'm Kevin Piper. I am an English instructor at a I'd call it a comprehensive uh, community college that helps students with both transfer and also with some technical and vocational degrees. So, just to start off, does comprehensive mean, what does that mean? Yeah. I'm just like, so what is, how is a comprehensive community college different than a regular, regular community yeah. college? Great. Uh, yeah, so a lot of community colleges, the ones we tend to hear about in publications like the Community College Research Center, those often refer to the community colleges that tend to be the, the college down the street from uh, some, a larger university, a larger four-year college. And those are community colleges where students complete their first two years to typically, you could say, their freshman and sophomore year there. They'll do their gen eds mostly. And then they'll, they'll graduate or they'll just transfer out and they'll move over to the four-year, the four-year university to finish up their degree. It's becoming a much more uh, popular option for students because of the, some of the savings involved of going to a cheaper place than somewhere like, like UW-Madison. UW um, sometimes it tends to cut the cost in half, sometimes even more. So that's the, that's, that's the um, typical community college. And then there are also technical colleges. And, um, and these, are, these are where students get electrical engineering degrees or, um, or two-year electrical engineering degrees degrees working on, for working on cars, like um, uh, diesel mechanic type degrees, or they, they learn to be welders. Uh, so this, um, this kind of vocational stuff also happens at the Comprehensive Community College. So we do both. Sometimes it's called dual mission. Hmm. We do both missions, the technical and the transfer. Sometimes it's called comprehensive, just depending on who you're talking to. Okay. Very cool. I will note for listeners that uh, Kevin and I met at UW-Madison, so that will probably be a common sort of thing that I will refer to in, try, in making comparisons, because at least I will know, <laughs> and Kevin will know what I'm talking about. Uh, but basically, if we, if we do that, we're just referring to big state school. So how, I was about to ask you how your job is any different than mine, but that sort of presupposes some stuff, I guess. So could you, how, what, are, what is your job as a faculty member at a community college? Uh, what are the things you have to do in order to keep your job? And I guess maybe before we even get there, does a faculty at a community college have tenure? Hmm. Yeah, these are, these are good questions. Uh, where to start? Um, well, it's the, the tenure question is a little easier to tackle. Some do, some don't. It depends on the model of a college, and I could be wrong about this, but I think it often has to do with sometimes whether the, the college uh, was unionized or not, oh, and so hmm. sometimes there is the associate uh, and assistant professor model, and then sometimes it's just a pay, a pay scale uh, where, you know, every year, a couple of years, you know, you 
there are raises for longevity. Uh, and so it, it could be either. But typically, even if there's not tenure, there are full-time positions. Instead of tenure positions, they're usually just referred to as full-time positions. Mm-hmm. And with those, it's generally understood that you know you you you'll continue to work year after year. Um, but the word the word tenure never comes up in uh, in, in those institutions. My institution is one that does not have tenure. We have the, the full-time position. So, I have just last week submitted my tenure dossier, mm-hmm. which was stressful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's not something you ever have to deal with as long as you are there. Yeah, it's, it was a little different for me. I went through, uh, see, it's, it's less, you know, the great thing that you're shooting for, and it's more the terrible thing that you're trying to avoid. Uh, it's a it's a probation process that you go through, where, where you're you're a probationary faculty member for a couple of years. This is at least at my institution, and uh, where I am, it's three years. And so I had to do regular reviews with my dean, submit some documents. Actually, I did submit a portfolio at the end, uh, and um, and then they uh, they let me stay. <laughs> Yay! Little 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 tiny flags were waved, and uh, now I'm now I'm a full-time faculty member who's off probation. So tenure gives us some form of security or whatever. What kind of security does being a full professor offer? Full time or full? I'm sorry, full time. Uh, what kind of? I mean, are you protected in some ways? Hmm. Um. Yeah, these are. I mean, these are these are challenging questions I'm at this, sorry. this point in time. Um, yes, I feel protected. I have complete complete certainty that I'm going to to, to keep my my position for the foreseeable future. Um, and uh, that's uh, that's 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 been enough for me. It's kept me in the position. Um, I don't see a lot of faculty where I am fleeing because they feel like their jobs aren't secure or anything like that. Um, most of them actually, I think, feel pretty grateful to have the jobs that we have and that we get to keep coming back year after year. Yeah, to, answer the, okay. to answer the other question that you asked earlier, which is like, what do we, what do, we do? You know, what's, our, what's our work? Uh, it, is, it is primarily teaching. These are, we're teaching, we're teaching faculty first and foremost. And that, that's it's one of the reasons that I was, I was drawn to it. I, I found when I was in graduate school that I was spending my time thinking about my lesson plans, and I was getting around to my research when I could. Uh, and, and so it, it just became, it became the first thing that I thought about when I woke up in the morning. Um, well, besides my wife. <laughs> yes, her first, <laughs> then lesson plan. Oh, yeah. Mine's uh, Actually, technically, and, since I know you, Kevin, it was probably first your wife, then your cats, then your lesson plan. Yeah. I was going to say my cats, but then I realized it's the cats that don't let me think about anything else first. Uh, <laughs> they force you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's teaching primarily, and then a lot of our time goes into uh, professional development around the teaching 
uh, as well. When I came to my college, it was 20% of my my load. We call it workload. Very, you know, very uh, um, labor, a lot of labor language around this. Uh, 20% of my workload was professional development, working in, uh, taking courses uh, uh, about new teaching methods, learning new styles, new delivery methods, working with groups of other faculty in order to develop new courses. It was, um, it was a lot more emphasis spent spent on that. And the, the class sizes are, they're not bad, especially for, especially for English faculty. We teach between 25 to 35 students in a class. And that's usually an exception made because we were, were writing instructors and there's a lot of feedback. And so, um, so there's also just a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with students. But this also means that, you know, if, if, if someone doesn't like grading, uh, it might not be the job for them because there is a lot of grading. I have a, I, I have, sometimes I could have up to, well, I could have between 125 and 150 students in a given semester. Um, that are all mine uh, over the course of um, five different sections. You, you, what you cannot see is Melody's <laughs> face like melting. <laughs> I teach writing, so I'm feeling your pain. Only I don't feel your pain because I don't have nearly that many students in my class. You're teaching like five sections about a semester? Yes, five, 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 yeah. Oh my God, I maybe should stop yep. complaining about my job. <laughs> <laughs> well, but then there's the, someone could, some, some might consider this a perk and others might not. There's no reward for, um, for publishing. But there's no penalty for not publishing. And there's no penalty for not publishing, yeah. So, to put, one of the things you said is, is that when you first came on, at least, you had 20% of your sort of load of your time was supposed to be spent in professional development. Uh, just to put that in perspective for our listeners, that's one day out of five, an entire work day spent mm -hmm. learning pedagogy. Uh, it's kind of awesome because that's not a thing for most professors. It's yeah. not a requirement. Yeah. Yeah, many, uh, many, many of the faculty in my department have published in uh, TETYC, mm -hmm. Teaching English at a Two-Year College, um, sometimes just for kicks, even though, you know, your dean loves to see that. Um, and a lot of us do attend uh, a, lot of, a lot of teaching conferences as well to do additional professional development type work. Some people still stay abreast of their field. I mean, I, we all stay abreast of our field, but some people still um, are active in their field. We, we have a, um, uh, an Africanist who has uh, been, been very, very productive. And we have a lot of uh, uh, another English professor you see is there's a lot of MFAs uh, who, are, who are published poets and short story writers and fiction writers. Mm -hmm. I think we talked in an earlier one about degrees and that the MFA is sometimes the appropriate kind of terminal degree in, in creative writing, my understanding is the MFA is kind of the standard, like there might be some PhD programs, but if you're going to be a short story writer or a poet, then the MFA is what you need, you don't, you don't need that PhD. Being neither, I'm not actually 100% sure. That's true. Yeah, I don't know about the creative writing field, but at, at, at our, in our at our college, the, um, I think it's that general rule that you need a, a degree, 
a degree, or maybe it's two degrees above what you're teaching, actually. Actually, I think it's a degree above what you're teaching, and I'm just realizing that that rule doesn't actually apply to our college. We need master's degrees in order to teach at this college, and that is, that's typically the case with community colleges and two-year colleges that grant associate's degrees, these two-year degrees like we offer. I think that's an, a, like a higher learning commission guideline. Sounds about right. Yeah. Are you, I mean... I had some people who graduated from my doctoral program who went to teaching uh, community college, and some of them had tenure-track positions, but it seemed to me that based on the job market and things I've been looking at, that there seems to be um, a transition of sorts from where more community colleges are asking for PhDs than, I mean, so they're recruiting actively PhDs in those tenure-track positions, and again, it might just be you know, if it's a unionized school or whatever. But I thought that it was kind of swinging in the direction of even two-year schools were going more of the PhD route. Do you think that's true? Not at my school. I would say the, I would say the opposite is true at my school. Um, my school is in um, one of these states uh, where there's a lot more emphasis on the trades and mm-hmm. the technical side of education and a lot less emphasis on the liberal arts, and uh, so I think I think uh, you might even say go so far as to say, as at an institution like ours, maybe a PhD is, is overqualified, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and there's actually no even in a, even in the, the the pay system that they had when I when I started up, there wasn't really a great um, perk there for there wasn't really a great bump in salary for having a PhD over a master's degree. And it was more and more, they more rewarded experience over anything. Uh, it was a, and I think again, this is the, just, this is a lot of, this has a lot to do with the union heritage of the institution. There's a lot of emphasis on the access mission of community colleges and along with that, the, the, the making sure that the faculty are equal across the board. Okay. Interesting. So you've talked about teaching, which melted Melody's face, and sort of professional <laughs> development, which is kind of the stand-in for research um, or parallel to it. What about service to the institution? Is that something that is required of you? Um, yes, yes. Service is definitely something that we do. It's um, it's. It's often, it's, lately it's under debate what exactly that looks like. But I think if, uh, if faculty make a good argument that what they're doing is service, then they tend to be able to do it and be able to count it towards their, towards their position. We, we have some, some faculty currently who are um, traveling to the Caribbean uh, to take a field trip, of, uh, to take students on a field trip there and do learning in place. And the additional work they're doing in order to make that happen uh, is, is for them something that they're able to consider service. I would agree. That's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, uh, so there's, there's, there's great opportunities like that. Another thing that happens at two-year colleges, especially more frequently, is that uh, there's a lot of there's a, it's a, the line between administration and faculty is becoming very blurry. And there's uh, there's a lot of faculty, full-time faculty especially, will will chip in with the, administering certain aspects of the institution, 
And so while I've talked about the, the steep course load from before, uh, I also I have time in my schedule. I actually have only been teaching three courses lately uh, because I have time in my schedule to help uh, our liberal arts program set up transfer tracks for students with other colleges and different majors. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm also um, I'm co-chairing the, the department. And there are three co-chairs because we're a pretty large department. So there's a lot of administrative needs in there as well. So, um, and sometimes that's more than just the amount of time it would take to teach a course. That's service too, and it kind of spills over as well. Other things that people do for service is they um, they they sit on shared governance committees, like at most institutions. So that's very similar. They they do a lot of curriculum work for courses. Um, oh, participating in some of the some uh, you could call them like the the, the really hot college-wide initiatives. Like uh, it, it, community colleges are very just very altruistic and so like right now we have something called scholars of promise which is that we're, we're paying for a number of um, struggling challenged students to uh, come to our institution and we're going to track them all the way through the institution to see how they do and find faculty mentors for them and anybody who participates in this in this program for the community uh, is, is really is, is contributing to service to the college some also have a model where advising becomes a major piece of the faculty's responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think that our, our college is probably moving in that direction as well. I think it's part of ours. I don't know if I would say major. It's technically, when you filled out our activity summary, it's under teaching. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. I mean, because that was one of the questions under that category well, was how many true. advisees do you have and blah, blah, blah. Yes, I guess I turned one of those in. No, that was last. It's end of the year. The activity summaries come in. So. Supposed to be in your portfolio. I have them in there. Okay. I just haven't written one recently. Well, no, you wrote, wrote it in August. So you're saying that you can't count your advisees as service? Well, we count them as well. The way that it's set up in our activity summary that we turn in at the in August to reflect what we did in the last academic year. Um, that's under our teaching category. Mm-hmm. But trust me, when there's plenty of service opportunities beyond advising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bunch of committees and junk. Yes. So, Kevin, you have a different po- student population than Melody and I do. We tend to have uh, straight out of high school. Yeah, traditional. Traditional, in quotes, students. Is your student population similar? Do you, we have very few um, uh, non-traditional students. <laughs> uh, you know, students who are, we have some students who are in their 40s, I think, who've come back after, you know, doing whatever it is in their lives that they were doing and now they're coming back and they actually are here, like, living on campus. Those are few and far between for yeah, us, though. Very, they're very rare for us. Um, do you, so does your institution, is it a residential campus, meaning that students live on campus, or is it a commuter campus, meaning students from the, uh, from the surrounding area come to campus? Is your population sort of out of high school, young, or kind of continuing education, older students? What, what is, 
Who are your students? Yeah, yeah. This is a this is actually a pretty common question on um, interviews for for faculty positions at community colleges. I mean, this is like the question. So anybody who ever listens to this, who's thinking about applying to community college jobs, have an answer to this question ready. I would say, well, to start, yeah, it's mostly it's mostly commuters, and uh, one of the biggest complaints is is parking. <laughs> uh, it's I mean, oh man, I've never heard. Um, I mean, I, I actually saw the score the other the other day, and it was uh, we got a two. We got the student satisfaction was a two out of five on parking. <laughs> wow. And with the student body, well, to give you to give you a, a baseline, when I when Peter when I when we taught over at UW Madison, I mean, I remember they I couldn't believe they even used this term now that I'm at a community college, but they called them. Um, they called them special students. What? <laughs> yeah, the older they called, they called returning adults. They called them special students. That was like their official, uh, their official term. I couldn't believe it. Uh, yeah, I, I don't remember hearing that. I cannot yeah. believe they used that term. <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully they've changed that since then. But I mean, that's the thing, though, is it's so rare there that there, there just isn't even a lot of, um, you know, I, I guess there's just not a lot of opportunities to really think through, well, how do we handle this population of students? And so maybe I'd have one student like that. Maybe I'd have one student who would bring me like a disabilities accommodation or something like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'd have one student who uh, was struggling with finding a place to live while they were in college. Uh, that kind of stuff though, now that I'm at a community college, that's like, that's like, those are, these are percentages of the class actually. Um, you know, I'll have, I'll have four to five, well, maybe actually, maybe four to eight returning adults a semester. I'll have um, I can have a class with maybe maybe three to five students who need accommodations for disabilities. Uh, I'll have um, there's a lot of diversity. So much it's so much diversity, and that's been that's been wonderful. With the uh, with the with some of the adults, they even break down into different categories because some of them are, are people who have had, uh, have they've maybe, maybe sometimes it's women who have raised children and they didn't work while they were raising children and then they're coming back to college to get trained uh, for a job. And so that happens frequently. And then we also get what we refer to as dislocated workers, people who have been laid off. So we had a plant in the, in the city close recently and we actually made prepper, we prepared for the, um, the influx of students that were going to be laid off from this plant that closed. And it was just a thing, it was in, the, it was in all the memos we got, you know, we were, we were ready to go. And I, I'm just, some of the individual students I've had too, it's just, they have such incredible experiences. I, I had this one guy who uh, was, he was a tree trimmer. And he was, uh, so tree trimmers are typically like, like really, really small guys so that they can scramble up the trees to do the work. Makes sense. And he was six, seven. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Not small. And he was, he was known as the largest tree trimmer in the county. <laughs> and he just, he, it was, it was great too, because he loves talking about this. He loved telling stories about his tree trimmer days, but of course, eventually he ended up having some physical problems. So he was he was back doing business management, getting ready to like start up and manage his own company, you know, which is a 
which is a common shift that someone in the trades in the trades will make. They'll learn the trade, then they'll leave, retrain, and then they'll go out and they'll go manage their own, start their own business. And so, so we get to, we have a lot of students who are on these journeys like this, and we just get to see them at that stage where you know we can help them teach, we can help them learn to write memos or just learn to be better communicators in the office place. Um, I had another student who uh, worked at a psychiatric institution in the area. This was a psychiatric institution where a lot of notable people have been uh, have been locked up, actually. And uh, she she wrote some memoirish type pieces about her her work there while she was pursuing a criminology degree. Mm-hmm. And so we get we just a lot of lot of people with a lot of different backgrounds who are really juggling this work school thing and have you know sometimes they're in their tw- late twenties sometimes they're in their thirties. I've helped helped one woman who was she was in her gosh I think she was in her late sixties. And I helped her train in um, medical billing, I think, or something like that, so that she could go get a job. Uh, so we just it's quite quite a variety of students. One of the reasons I started this podcast was that I found that my students didn't understand what I did, <clears throat> and therefore kind of would stick their foot in it periodically. Mm-hmm. But you have a, a different job, although I guess it sort of amounting to very similar, and you have a different population, but do you find that your students have a difficulty or they don't have a perspective on what it is that you do? Yeah, I'd say that's, I'd say that's true. Um, so what are their, some of their misconceptions? Uh, I've, I've, I had a moment where in, one of the cool things I've, I've done was um, teach a business, it's like a business communication course, to students going into healthcare positions. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, this was a cohort of students who were all, most of them, 90% of them were going to be nurses. And, you know, it was just, it was like, it was like spending three hours a week with a room full of nurses, or at least CNAs at this point, uh, certified nursing assistants. And so it got, it got pretty chummy. Uh, and I remember one time walking out with a couple of them, and and one of them said, "So what do you got the rest of the day?" Uh, they said, "Oh, they said no." They said, "So you're teaching any more classes today?" That's what that's what she said. And I said, "Nope, this is my only one today." And she just and she said, "Ah, oh, wow, easy living. That must be nice." <laughs> and but she didn't like. I didn't want to you know, correct her misconception and say, well, actually, I have uh, three meetings this afternoon. Yeah, I'm you not know. teaching the rest of the day, but I will be working. Yeah, it's not like I'm just going to go home and like, take a siesta or anything like that. Like, so, you know, there. I think at, at our college, especially, especially because it's a community college, and these students are working an unbelievable number of hours a week. That I, you know, I think, I think they're, you know, they're, they're wondering, like, what is it? What is it that they're doing? But they don't understand that we are working on a skeleton crew when it comes to administration sometimes at institutions like ours. So the faculty end up having to take on quite a bit of that work. Or there's a misconception of, like, how long it actually takes to, to grade papers or how much time goes into prepping a lecture. 
uh, or whether we're advising students or not on the side. There are just other aspects of our work that they they don't know about it because they haven't they haven't witnessed it firsthand. Do you have any particular advice for students who are at a community college or junior college or a vocational Votech about how to interact with their professors, their instructors? It's, I mean, it sounds like they're already like super busy. So most of the stuff that rankles, I think, at four-year institutions about you know entitled students is probably not really going to ring for your for your situation since your students are already working so hard they're probably not presenting at least as very entitled but do you have that notwithstanding do you have any advice to to give students who would be knocking on your door the range is so extreme that it and, and you know it, it actually often depends on um, whether i'm teaching transfer students or whether i'm teaching the, the technical students. These are, it, it feel, it's a completely different experience teaching a room full of future nurses or a room full of mechanics than it is teaching you know, a group that's, that's primarily traditional students but still with a lot of um, returning adults mixed in. And so for the, for the transfer students, I think the advice is probably pretty similar that I would have given my students when I was, uh, when I was in graduate school at a you know, at a, at a research institution. And that advice was, you know, was respect. I, I, do, I do think that it goes a long way with a teacher to, to show a little bit of, of respect for, for the instructor, certainly. It's just, it's great for the student to do that. With many of the underprepared students, oh, that was a group of students I completely uh, forgot to mention, is that at community colleges, often the mission is access, and so anybody can attend. There's no, it's not like your ACT score needs to be this high or your SAT score needs to be this high to get in. It's anybody can attend. And so we have students at all ranges of academic preparedness. So, you know, students who can barely construct paragraphs come to, uh, come to community colleges to, to, to remediate those skills before they can even get close to getting college level credit. So for the underprepared students, they often severely lack college success skills or academic literacy or whatever you want to call it. And I would say to those, I would say to those students, even if your instructor seems maybe a little unapproachable, even if the instructor seems a little unapproachable, approach the instructor. <laughs> approach the unapproachable would be my advice for those for those students because I just I see a lot of shyness and I see a lot of unwillingness to reach out and it, it, it's, it saddens me sometimes because I think it's for the reason of I don't feel like I'm good enough or trying hard enough to warrant the attention of this individual and that's just absolutely not the case community college instructors are there for the student in fact they're there for the student before they're there for anything else um, which is one of the great things about attending an institution like this mm. And then I said I'd also talk about the technical students. For those guys who I, who I love working with, with these guys, I love working with mechanics. I just I remember this class where there was a group of mechanics in the back, and they had their laptops, and they were looking at pictures of trucks. You know, that's what they wanted to do. They just wanted to look at pictures of trucks. And to those guys, I would say, please understand that communication 
is going to get you so far no matter what you do. And to just look up and try and listen to your instructor. Just, you know, try to make, try to make the time, even though I know that, that the trucks and the mechanic stuff is really fascinating. Recognize that in addition to your trade, in addition to that, that uh, it's worth it to learn some of this, this, these, this general education stuff, to brush up on your math and to brush up on your writing and to not shortchange that, that part of the education. I feel like this is advice that I give a lot to, I mean, so I have two general types of students that come through my calculus-based physics, which is not a large number, granted, but they're either sort of pre-med, so at, at ours, there we actually have a health sciences degree, so it's either those students or they're students on their way to like math or engineering degrees who will end up at someplace else. And especially the engineer, the students who are going on engineering, like every one of them, I try to hit it so hard as like, you will do fine on engineering or for mechanics. You'll be doing fine on doing mechanics stuff because you love to do that. So you're going to figure that out. But you got to get on, like, take seriously all of the writing and composition and all that stuff and those other skills because... It's those that are going to make you more valuable as an employee. Those are going to allow you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do simply knowing the engineering or knowing the mechanics. That, you know, having those other skills turns you from just a grunt who does the work into a manager and a leader. And so I super, super <laughs> second that position uh, as somebody who has a, a science degree and is always rattling on to other people who are getting science degrees, like, no, you need to take the English classes seriously in your history classes. Yeah, absolutely. He's just kind of reiterating the things we've been saying, you know, like, oh, yeah. respect, it's a thing. Oh, well, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> so, Kevin, how does a student show respect? Hmm. That's 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 a great question. That has uh, that has the, the answer to that question has changed for me quite a lot over the years, especially working at a community college. Hmm. Let's uh, go chronologically. Let's start from maybe grad school and then move, sure. move on to yeah. uh, more complex and nuanced understanding. Yeah. Well, let's. You know, I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna make a big secret about the fact that that graduate students teaching for the first time are really wet. They're really um, wet behind the ears. And they, um, they're trying, and they're really eager, and they're really enthusiastic, uh, but they, I think they, these are students who were serious and adored their professors, and I think that in some ways maybe they have a little bit of an expectation that they're going to get a similar response from their students. This like, oh, please teach me, you know, like a Plato Symposium kind of deal. And, you know, obviously it's a, it's a rude awakening to... <laughs> To, to, to learn that you kind of have to earn that a little bit. But, you know, today at a community college, I would say, you know, I, 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 used, I used to expect that students would write, like use, a, use letter formatting in their email when they would send it to me. Dear Professor Piper, comma, you know, paragraphs, sincerely, comma, so-and-so with, uh, you know, the whole kit and caboodle and the, the kind I, of form I will use when addressing my boss <laughs> yeah yeah something something professional along those lines and what I've what I've come to recognize at a community college is that you know I'm being I'm actually being e emailed 
through uh, through mobile phones quite a bit. Yes. These are students who are taking you know a minute here, a minute there to try to get in a question with their professor. You know, while they're while they're managing fazolis or where, wherever it is that they're they're working during the day or at night. So so I've come to understand that that my students sometimes they need a little bit of freedom uh, in in that area. And so I don't consider it disrespectful if the student tries to get in a quick question through a quick through a quick email along those lines. What I do look for with respect is I look for what's the the right way to say this? I look for openness almost. I think what I see sometimes because of the grind that college can become is that students have maybe written off an instructor or a class or a subject before they've even they've even like given it the old college try. <laughs> <laughs> is that where that comes from? So to from? speak. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is. Maybe we just rediscovered the origin. And so yeah, it's that it's that openness. And I said this about the diesel mechanic students. Like I said, look up. <laughs> you know, look up. Look and listen when when you're in there. And I. I think that that's really respect is more like attention. That's what it is. I think respect is attention in the classroom and in conversations and in one-on-ones and when receiving feedback from instructors. And that attention doesn't always have to be doesn't always have to be nice. I've I've had students, and I was actually glad for these students who were very honest when something wasn't working for them. I was, I guess you could say, lecturing, explaining something to the whole class the other day, and. A student asked a question, and I said, I gave an answer, and then I said, does that make sense? you got to be careful if you're going to ask, did that make sense? <laughs> it's kind of, kind of sticking your foot in it. And she said, uh, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that was, I, at one point in time, I think I would have considered that disrespectful. But what that led to, because we had more one-on-one time with our students was that led to me being able to work with that student and to, to being able to work with her in a way where she was able to get it. And it actually turned into a really great opportunity. And so, you know, if it had been this kind of obsequious respect where she just couldn't even tell me honestly that she didn't understand something I said, then it wouldn't have been helpful for her. And so, uh, so yeah, I've got, I think I got a complicated view um, or maybe not so much. It's just attention, to be honest with me, and maybe also recognize that the, the instru- recognize that the instructor is there to help. The instructor is really there to help you, not to uh, not to punish you. That's not that's not the goal. That's not the goal of teaching. I mean, I ask that. Does that make sense all the time? Actually, Me like too. multiple all times all in class. Time. Yeah. And sometimes they say no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they don't say anything. They just stare at me. I hate that. There's just the dead fish eyes <laughs> in my I'm class. Like, yeah, and well, nodding means yes, yes. thinking means no, and they're like, they still stare at me like, okay, I don't think they're getting it, but. Sometimes I feel like, I will assume from your, from your silence that you agree with me. Yeah, I do that too. Often at that point, after a couple like beats of like, just sort of like, thousand yard stare at me, I'll like, I'll raise my hand like, this makes total sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll raise my hand like, I am super confused. 
Well, I like to do the scale. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being, I'm so confused, I'm going to run out of this room and cry as soon as you dismiss Ooh, like us, that. and 1 being, I have this, please shut up and stop asking us if we understand it, where are we? And they'll oh. usually throw out a number. Nice, okay, I like that, I like that. I'm like, if it's a 6 or better, I'm usually okay. <laughs> Melody, do you have any questions you have for Kevin? Um, Aside from how he deals with 125 to 100. Uh, well, I know how he stuff. deals with that. It's probably through tears and coffee, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I, so, I mean, I sh I'm not going to complain about my job for a while. I mean, maybe in a few days after I've forgotten about this, but... <clears throat> so I actually went to um, a junior college, community college, and then transferred to a four-year institution... And I did that not so much. I don't think I made a, a choice based on, oh, this is good for me. It was about money, yep. <laughs> which is fine. It's a perfectly good reason to choose a school, especially for the first two years. I feel like I got a, a, a pretty good leg up. I didn't, whatever. But I'm curious um, if you, you seem to enjoy your job, and it seems like for most of your students, that's a really good choice for them. So what would you... What advice would you give if students are asking, should I go to a community or junior college, and what kinds of benefits might I get from that if I did go that route? Yeah, there are, you know, with some, with some conditions. It's, it's, it's a tough choice. I, I, grew up in, I grew up in Virginia, and there was actually a community college in my area that had a uh, guaranteed agreement with uh, the University of Virginia. And I sometimes look back and think, oh, wow, you know, I wish I had known about that. I wish I had taken advantage of that. So I, I, it is, it's, an, it's a tremendous deal. It's great. And to be able to get science and math classes out of the way uh, with small class sizes and with professors who are there to, primarily to teach, that's a, that's a really great um, opportunity to, 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 to actually learn it and to get some of the difficult stuff out of the way before, before transfer. So one of the perks is the, the small class sizes and the attention you get from instructors. That's definitely the biggie. One of the biggies, and then money is the other one. That one's that's a tough one though, because yes, technically every credit is cheaper at the community college, and then when you transfer over, theoretically you should be a, you should be a junior by the time you walk in the doors of your of your premier four-year institution. But that's that actually isn't always the case. One of the issues is is this transfer thing, and. Mm -hmm. Now that this is booming and students are doing this all the time, transfer has just become incredibly complicated, and it's, it's not always clear which courses a student should take for that student to go do engineering at, you know, the neighborhood, the neighborhood four-year college after graduating from a community college. It's, it's really challenging. And so one piece of advice I'd give is to recognize that you will probably need to seriously advocate for yourself and advise yourself if you're a student interested in doing the transfer route because a lot of times the um, the maybe the maybe the advising maybe there's some advising but they've got lots and lots of students and they're not always going to be able to help a student pick the right classes and so a lot of that falls on the students uh, shoulders to, to make sure that that's done right and so there's actually been some studies that have come out recently that have talked about how it's often not cheaper because so many students will take so many of the wrong courses before before they, they ship off to where they want to where they want to graduate. And I see that being a major problem. I think because mm -hmm. Drew's in the works in California and I went did my 
PhD in Wisconsin, both of those systems, I think, are set up to funnel through smaller institutions or, or local regional institutions up into big, for, for Wisconsin, it's UW-Madison. For California, it's the UC system. And so those, I think, are codified across. So if you go to, say, UW-La Crosse and take some classes, your transfer should be fairly well certain if you meet the criteria in transferring it into UW-Madison. But if you're transferring between states or the state does not have a setup like that where it's meant to funnel up to larger sort of flagship schools, then that can be a lot of legwork. And it's actually going to mean a lot of calls to the institution you want to ultimately end up at and a lot of calls to the, to the community college that you're thinking of going to and saying, I need a copy of the syllabus. I need a, you know... I need someone to help me determine, give me the information I need so I can take it to, if you want to go to, uh, I don't know, Ohio State or something, that you know that Ohio State will actually accept those classes as credits. Yeah, usually one four-year college to another four-year college in state, not a problem, like um, UW-La Crosse to UW-Madison. Mm -hmm. In about, I think it's like just about half the states right now, there are... Um, streamlined uh, transfer systems where English 100 or first-year composition is first-year composition no matter what institution you go to, two-year, four-year, or otherwise. So that's great for, for anybody in those states. But then there's the other states where it's usually just it's um, – I think about what um, – that's SNL skit when Bernie Sanders is describing his website. It's a mess. It really is. Like, it's, a it's just a huge mess. Uh, and, and so it's, if, if it's one of those states, it's definitely something to, to watch out for. And I was in one of those states. <laughs> I, I did my degrees in Oklahoma, and they don't have that kind of funneling system. Yeah. Um, and the, the junior college I went to and the four-year institution I transferred to did have an articulation agreement. And it was supposed yep. to be that if I completed my associate's degree that I could transfer that directly over and all of my gen eds would be taken care of. And I could start <laughs> it with didn't my, work out that way. It did not. It did yeah. not. I had to retake two classes. And one of them I was... Not bad. Cut, well, no. But one of them I was a little pissy about because I had taken it during the summer. Uh -huh. you know, specifically so that I could finish that degree up and transfer it in in August. And they're like, oh, no, not that class. And I was like, why did I do that? Mm -hmm. Such a pain. Um, so I try to tell students about that, too. Like, you just really need to research. And I was so just not with the program. Like, I didn't really think about these things. I was like, well, of course, if you go to one school and transfer to another, it's going to work. I mean, college is college. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but 19-year-old yeah, me didn't obvious. know. It's not an obvious thing for a student to realize. Yeah, Especially I mean, when most of our experiences, like, I mean, for me, not most of our experiences, but for anybody who had the traditional liberal arts college or research institution experience, you're usually, you're usually assigned uh, an advisor who's just going to kind of take care of you from day one up until graduation. And there are usually check-ins with somebody who's going to check to make sure you've got all the right courses and you're meeting all the various requirements, which are just becoming more and more complicated as years go by with the, um, the growth of these pre-professional programs that you were talking about, Peter, like engineering, um, all of these different 
all of these different programs have very, very selective requirements and sometimes will accept one thing and not another. So sometimes you've got the university telling you you've got a set of requirements you need to meet, and then sometimes you've got a department within, say, the letters and sciences area telling you you've got requirements to meet for a certain major, and then you maybe have the school of business or something like that telling you you've got to meet requirements for that school, uh, and just even in the institution that can be complicated, and so to try to factor in, oh, let's figure out which courses from this other college actually work, it can, yeah, it can get really, really, uh, it can be a nightmare. Yeah, I remember my previous institution, we had some, I, th I think at least one articulation agreement with the school, which was, you know, if you meet these these conditions, you will be admitted into the engineering school. But it did not specify that you make it into the, a particular engineering department. So you can make it into the engineering school, but fail to get into civil engineering if that's what you wanted to do, or electrical engineering, or there's a bajillion engineering's. You, you know. can't just do... Engineering. Yeah. You can't just do engineering. If, so, if you want to like blow your mind on the amount of engineering that you could do, go look up the department list at MIT. Yeah. It, it's almost all uh, engineering of different oh, sorts. Yeah. yeah. That, um, that reminds me of an initiative I'm part of right now. We're At, at my college, we're calling it the Transfer Pathways. Uh, but this is, there's a book released by the CCRC recently that tried to sum up all of the grant-funded research around community colleges over the last... 20 years. It's called Redesigning the American Community College. Uh, it's a really well done book. And their big recommendation was for two-year colleges to create uh, transfer pathways. To rather than just have like one big, here's your liberal arts degree that meets a bunch of gen eds. You know, here, your liberal arts degree, you need your sociology courses, you need your writing courses, and you need your math courses. To, to actually have different versions of the degree. Like you can get your liberal arts associates in math, you can get it in pre-engineering, you can get it in pre-health uh, in other areas. And uh, this is what, what this is doing is it's greatly simplifying course selection. And then it's, it's actually becoming the vision for how community colleges uh, are slowly beginning to revise the courses that they offer so that what they're offering are actually courses that help them with transfer down the road rather than what the current system is, which they call the a la carte system, where you know we've created this course because someone was interested in it and now it exists, maybe it transfers, maybe it doesn't. And so it's a lot of sort of just you know choosing this or choosing that and just kind of crossing your fingers and, and, and hoping that it'll all work out in the end. Uh, so, so hopefully this will get much better now that you know, community colleges realize that one of the factors that's really uh, stopping students from being successful is this 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 um, this hurdle of picking courses? Yes, that'll be nice. That's tricky. <laughs> it is, and it won't solve all of that problem, but it'll certainly help a fair amount. Well, Kevin, we are reaching the end of our time, so I want to thank you for joining us. It was super informative and really nice to talk with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was really enjoyable. Mm -hmm. So, listeners, if you would like to pose a question to me or give me some feedback, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Hyland, D-O-C-T-O-R-H-Y-L-A-N-D. If you have a little longer missive feedback to leave, then you can get me on email. I'm peter.o.hyland, H-Y-L-A-N-D, at gmail.com. All right, thanks, everybody. See you next week. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> bye.